China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Yao Wenlei, a professor in the Department of Sociology at Harvard University. Today we'll be discussing her new book, The Gilded Cage, Technology, Development, and State Capitalism in China. Yawen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jude, for having me. So you were actually one of the first guests I had on the podcast, I think in the late Tang Dynasty, or four years ago, I forget which one. So I really appreciate you coming back. And of course, we're here to talk about this really fantastic new book, some of the ideas of which we discussed in that first podcast. But I wonder if I can still ask you about your biography. For those listeners who didn't hear the first one or who've forgotten it, can you just tell us a bit about where where you're from? And I think most importantly, what set you on this sociological career with an interest in understanding dynamics of China's economic development? Yeah, sure. So my name is Yao Wenlei. I am a professor of sociology at Harvard, and I grew up in Taiwan, in Taipei. I studied both law and sociology. I came to the U.S. in 2005. First, I did a law degree at Yellow School, where I was very fortunate to meet with a lot of good friends from mainland China. And I became very interested in what's going on in China since 2005. And at Yellow School, I realized I was much more interested in how law operates in reality instead of study like a legal doctrine. And then I decided to study sociology. And it's the famous tiger mom, Amy Chua, who persuaded me that I, I mean, study uh, sociology would fit my own personal interest better than I really took her advice very seriously and I applied to uh, sociology. But I have very broad interests. I'm interested in law, interested in sociology. And uh, I think I was very lucky that I was able to study China in really a period where China had transformed really, really rapidly. You wouldn't see that kind of transformation elsewhere uh, in other parts of the world. So my first book focused more on the political transformation. We remember at one time there was a more prosperous public sphere in China and people began to discuss online. So my first book was on that topic. So I grew up in the process of democratization and also rapid uh, economic development. So I am interested in similar process like political development and also economic development in China from my own Taiwanese perspective. Part of the book focused on the development of internet, but kind of political consequences. After I finished that book, I also recognized the really rapid rise of China's digital economy and the simultaneous transformation in China's uh, more traditional manufacturing sector. That made me very interested in what's going on. And at that time, I also noticed, for example, like Foxconn uh, began to replace workers with robots uh, after several uh, workers committed suicide. And some local governments in coastal China also endeavored to replace humans with robots. And so there were some changes in the traditional sector. And we also see the enormous expansion in the digital 
sector. So suddenly China has the second largest digital economies and some of the largest digital internet companies in the world. And that fascinated me. So that's why I wanted to work on this project. Before we get to start talking around the book, someone who is referenced repeatedly in the book is the noted American sociologist, Daniel Bell, also taught at Harvard. Can you talk a bit for listeners, and I admit I have a very superficial understanding of Bell. Can you talk a bit about Daniel Bell and why you think some of his ideas on post-industrialization are interesting or important for thinking about China's own development? Daniel Bell is a very interesting and forgotten figure in American sociology. He was very influential in the past. And since 1960, he had been writing about post-industrial society. And most of people, when they talk about post-industrial society, they emphasize the rise of the service sector in an economy. But if you read his work carefully, so you will notice that one of the his arguments, so he emphasized one major feature of post-industrial society is the enhancement of instrumental power based on technology over people. And he thinks in the post-industrial society, there will be a game between people rely on what he say, intellectual technology like algorithm and computing and data. So these are the things that we talk about today, right? But then in the 60s and 70s, that was how he imagined the future. So he imagined, oh, in post-industrial society, these instruments would become very important And if you look at a lot of very influential books today, for example, surveillance capitalism, platform capitalism, digital capitalism, a lot of books in this genre just describe and analyze how big tech companies use instruments to control workers and individuals. They collect data. They can manipulate people's attitudes through instruments and data. And I think Daniel Bell's book is very important because he predicted that in the past. And he was also thinking about China's uh, trajectory. He classified China as a pre-industrial society in the 60s. And I think it would be very difficult for him to actually foresee China's rapid change within just uh, several decades. And was Bell's conception of this instrumentality of power of technology that this would be wielded by uh, market actors, or did he also see this as states harnessing these new technologies? When he was writing about these things, that was the era of still the New Deal order. Like, so he assumed the power of the government. Keynesian government that emphasized like the welfare state and kind of big government. That was the ideal uh, in the past. So in his imagination, his understanding, the government would use this kind of technological power to uh, do something good for the society in general. And in his book, he didn't really discuss the power of capital, but we can see that it's so different. His analysis is very centered on the government, but nowadays, almost all the writing about the digital capitalism, surveillance capitalism focus on 
the private sector, the tech company. So that's really, I think he didn't really foresee this kind of the changing of ideology and also structure of the government and the rise of this kind of big tech power. So you've been watching and writing about the development of China's political economy and its development model. When you were first thinking about this book, and we'll get to the main thesis in a minute, but I'm I'm curious, what were the puzzles that you wanted to explore in this? Or what were the questions you were asking yourself that, that led to you finally pursuing this specific book project? We all know that um, the role of the government is very important uh, in China. I was thinking about what are the characteristics of China's uh, developmental, like techno developmental regime, because I read a lot of literature about East Asian developmental state in the past, for example, like South Korea and also Taiwan, and they both experienced similar process of transition, like economic transition from labor-intensive manufacturing to a more high-tech oriented economy. And the government in Taiwan, also in South Korea, they had their ways of manipulation, kind of they guided the economy in certain ways. So I'm wondering really how to understand the Chinese case, what are the differences between, for example, the more classical examples of the developmental states in, in Taiwan and Korea, and also what are the unique things in China, and also uh, the timing and also technology of these technological transitions uh, were very different in different cases. So in the cases of Taiwan and also Korea, when they experienced this transition, the internet was was not developed at that time, but China had that transition at a very different moment and in different global environment. That's a more a higher level of globalization. Uh, so technology different, and the glo- the global conditions are different, and also the scale of the countries are different. Um, so I'm just one. I just wondering how what kind of new things I can say about this uh, transformation. This is probably a good time to then just ask you more bluntly to to describe the main thesis of the book. What is the gilded cage? Why a cage? And and why is it gilded? So there are two components in the term the gilded cage. So the first component is that I would really want to acknowledge that it's gilded because within a very short period of time, China created the second largest digital economy and some of the most influential internet companies in the world. And if we, it's really an achievement. So if we think about the development in the U.S. and in the uh, and in China, like in the late uh, 90s, I think many people still recall uh, the dot-com boom, right? And Many of the influential internet companies uh, in both countries actually were established around the same time. And given the really the uh, different timing of industrialization in the U.S. and in China, one wouldn't expect that China actually was able to establish such influential and expensive digital economy. They did as well as the U.S., that's from my own uh, evaluation. So I think the gilded is that means that the country was able to create this kind of digital economy within a very short time. Let me um, explain the idea of cage. So cage restricts a lot of freedom and it's constituted by many different kinds of instruments uh, developed by both 
the Chinese government and China's uh, tech companies, big tech companies. So uh, remember, I mentioned about uh, Daniel Bell's work. So he emphasized that uh, post-industrial society is characterized by the enhancement of instrumental uh, power based on technology. So in the process of facilitating uh, China's technology transformation, uh, the Chinese government uh, made a lot of quantitative mobilize a lot of uh, quantification method and try to evaluate uh, different kind of capital, different kind of industry, different kind of corporation, and also the value of different kind of individuals. So it's a process like mobilizing scientific method. For, um, you might recall that Hu Jintao, right, in the mid 2000s he emphasized so much on like the concept of scientific development. So there is a move toward that kind of using more kind of advanced technology and instrument to guide and to pick the right capital and the labor in order to better allocate resources, especially land. So I think those kind of instruments uh, constitute some kind of cage because it restricts how people act and react. For example, like government officials, they are evaluated in a lot of ways. They have to obey and follow the rules, the legal like instruments, and also a lot of technical in- instruments enacted by the government. And at the same time, it's not only the government, but also because of the regulatory environment. The Chinese government gave internet companies a lot of uh, space. And then in their uh, respective like digital kingdoms, they also enacted a lot of this kind of technical instrument, for example, algorithm, to shape people's inten- uh, incentive and, uh, and set the games of the rules for users and workers, consumers. So I think just the rules, the instrument uh, enacted by the government and also the big tech company constitute some kind of cage because people have to follow those things and try to have a better life and sometimes move from one cage to another. And some people may think, okay, they will have better opportunity or better future in a less restricted cage or a better cage. So they move, but they, but in the end, everyone from government officials and to workers, business actors, and ordinary citizens, all of them have to follow this kind of increasingly expanded rules. So that's why I think it's a cage. Can I ask you to just quickly give listeners some context on the cage metaphor and where it originated in China? Because that does seem to be an interesting part of why the cage is not your own framework for thinking about it. It has been a part of, of Chinese political economy discussions since the 1980s. So since the beginning of the economic reform, there were a lot of debates about how to uh, structure China's economy. And Shen Yun was one of the most influential figures on this topic. And he came up with the idea of birdcage economy, right? And China, and they used the world's uh, bird and cage to refer to economy and state control, uh, respectively. So the idea is that you want to let the birds uh, grow, but at the same time, you don't want to let the bird fly away. So you need to have some control. But in the old days, the government didn't classify different kinds of birds. Right? All kinds of birds were good as long as they can produce economic growth. But seeing in the, my book, I talk about since the mid-2000s, the government, a lot of local governments began to uh, distinguish 
like new birds from old birds. Some birds are good, some birds are not good. So, and they want to create different environment, like cages for different kinds of birds. And also in sociology, there we have very famous sociology called Max Weber. He had the idea of the iron cage um, in which. So that he means that uh, people only pursue like efficiency, calculability, that kind of things. So in the end, so people are kind of like controlled by the instrument. And in the process of modernization, this kind of cage uh, has been expanding. And I think China is really an extreme case of this kind, having this kind of expanding cage. So that's why I think I that's why I decided to use the like metaphor of the gilded cage to describe the techno development and transformation in China since the mid 2000s. And also, I forgot to mention one thing. So if you look at how the government in Taiwan and South Korea structure their transformation, they only target very specific sector. So at their uh, ways of intervening in the economy, I actually interviewed government officials in Taiwan. They were very surprised by the way in which the Chinese government at multiple level tried to evaluate so many different sectors and so many different actors, businesses in the economy. And I think that you didn't see that kind of things in Taiwan's shift to techno development. So Taiwan, the government didn't really kind of try to evict the old like people and also like business in the old sector. They decided not to do the same thing or move to like China for their economy reason, but the government didn't really crack down on them just because of their perceived low contribution on economy. One of the things you you mention in the book is the idea of a country's development on a compressed timeline, right? And I think the argument is even some development states, as you just mentioned, Taiwan, for example, the process occurred over a, a, a slower time horizon and with less active state steerage, as Barry Naughton calls it, to sort of forcibly change the structure of the cage. You mentioned this early in our conversation, but maybe just build on it a bit. How does the the relatively compressed nature of of China's development efforts, what are the, first of all, what are the costs of that? What happens when a state tries to accelerate or I guess compress a, a development time horizon? What challenges does that face for uh, workers, for companies, and then I'll, I'll ask a follow-up, but let me just put that one to you first. So usually when Galler talk about compressed development, they would use East Asian countries as examples. But even among East Asian countries, China is usually seen as a very extreme case of time compressed development. And of course, the good things about time compressed development is that you can really catch up within a very short time, especially in the area where they don't have a lot of technological uh, hurdle. They can somehow build their own strength and that kind of expansion could be extremely rapid. But you are right in the way that the extreme uh, level of time, time compressed development led to a lot of problem for the government and for people, especially for those who don't have a lot of uh, recognized skill in a more upgraded economy. And for those uh, listeners who read uh, Professor uh, Scott Rosales in Invisible China, they would know that despite China's rise as an economic and technological superpower, 
uh, the labor force in China has the lowest level of education of any comparable countries, uh, including Latin. If you compare, for example, if you compare China with Latin American country, then and there is a huge migrant population in China. And how would the government deal with the these people who don't have the skill in a knowledge economy, how would you do to their, not only to these workers, but their families, if you want to consider social equality? I'm going to ask a question about techno-fetishism in a minute, because that's an important part of the argument here. But before I do, I wondered if you could talk a bit about, as you were looking at the various influences on China's development trajectory, there's a good portion of this book that is talking about contemporary developments in China under Xi Jinping. You had a really interesting discussion in the book of Xi Jinping's dissertation. And I was telling you before we recorded that I think I lose my China expert card because I've never read Xi Jinping's dissertation. I'd like to say that I have, but I can I don't foresee any world where I sit down and spend a week reading his dissertation. I would imagine it's pretty turgid. You have for for those of us who haven't, can you talk about what did you learn from it? And as you appropriately say, of course there are always rumors and there have been for a while as to whether or not Xi Jinping actually wrote the dissertation, but your point I think is a good one. Even if he it was ghost written, obviously or must necessarily represent some of his views or maybe even the majority of his views if he allowed it to be put out in his name. So what does that document teach you about how Xi Jinping thinks about China's uh, economic development? I read um, not only uh, Xi Jinping's dissertation, but his other writings around the same period when he uh, was in Fujian and also when he was the party secretary in Zhejiang. So basically, I found several themes from his writing, and it's very consistent. And I would also argue that his thinking has actually been very consistent <laughs> over time until today. So I can see kind of two like major themes from his writings. Um, so the first is the relationship between patriotism and technology. He emphasized really a lot about using technology to save China. So like national development and technology. And the second one is that he has a lot of doubts on the market economy and the allocation of resources through market. And he always talk about uh, market is imperfect and one has to use technology. He loves technology and law. That's my reading from his dissertation and other writings. So basically, technology is not only kind of um, the thing that can actually improve the economy, but it's also improved economy also in a very interesting way because he thinks technology, especially information technology, can help the government to gather data and more information and to improve um the government's uh, control and also uh, the guidance of economy. So you need to have information technology, not only because of like very direct economic reason, but also that can improve the government's uh, role in economy. So it's very similar to like big data, that kind of thinking. So with big data and with a lot of algorithm, you can improve the government decision making. So he has that kind of thinking from his writing. And another thing is that he thinks his dissertation also showed his belief in using law to regulate the market. So 
he thinks market is inadequate. So first, you need to have technology to improve the market allocation of resources, and you need to use law to regulate market. And it's also very interesting that he already talked about common prosperity in his writing at that kind of moment. I forgot it's in his dissertation or other writing in the same period. But it's fascinating that he didn't talk about how China's institution, for example, like a hukou institution, actually led to a lot of inequality. But he kind of mentioned about common prosperity, but he was really not interested in kind of uh, dealing with uh, or even specifying and uh, not mention dealing with the institution that led to equality. It just seemed like he mentioned equality. He didn't really deal with that in a very serious way. When you say Xi Jinping sees utility in using law, what does he mean by that word? Regulation. Like he thinks um, like market usually has a lot of, you need to regulate market in order to facilitate its function and operation. And if you don't regulate a market, then that could create a problem. Do you get the sense that Xi Jinping was an outlier for official on a coastal province with a high proportion of private sector activity? Or is your guess that that actually was more mainstream of a view? It's not, radi- it's not radical. I think he is the most articulate, or he's, he is the most arcu- articulate person in terms of theorizing this kind of things. And I think in the mid-2000, a lot of leaders in coastal provinces all agreed that China need to have a transition to a more technological-driven development. But he was the one that really can come up with a lot of specific theories. For example, he really elaborated the idea of empty the cage and replacing the birds, like Tenglonghuaniao. So that was when he that that's when he was the party secretary of the Zhejiang province. So usually when we think about this kind of a policy, people would tell, talk about Wang Yang. But Xi Jinping actually did that before Wang Yang, and he really wrote a lot about that about industrial policy <laughs> in the past. Yeah. One other element which you which comes out in Xi Jinping's dissertation, and indeed is a a, a mainstream of Chinese development thinking is this term techno-fetishism. That's, of course, not the term they use, but that's a term to describe this type of thinking. The idea of an unadulterated view or hope that technology can fast forward or, or leap over or circumvent current challenges is not new. And indeed, going back to you know the late 19th century, Chinese reformers we're thinking about the the power of technology in in saving China, but it's it seems to be that in contemporary China, policymakers are further to the right of a bell curve distribution on techno fetishism than you see in lots of other countries, and this seems to be supported by or bolstered by pretty widespread optimism about technology amongst the Chinese public. But can you talk about the role in this techno fetishism? Over the past several decades in China's in, in China's reform trajectory, how important has techno fetishism been to shaping policy choices, and what drives the optimism of the Chinese people about this? Obviously, you know Americans are relatively techno optimistic, but China seems to be orders of magnitude more techno optimistic. Why is that? Do you think? 
I think you are right. This kind of thinking began in the late 19th century because of the consequences of imperialism. So using technology and democracy to save China, but then the democracy part sometimes is neglected. So I, in my book, I presented data of a global survey. It's called World Value Survey, comparing Chinese people's attitude towards science technology to the attitude of, of people in other countries. And China ranked a number, like almost number one or number two, in terms of how uh, optimistic and also enthusiastic people's attitudes are, are about technology. And I think why this is the case, so I think it's, there is a historical reason. And I also think in the Chinese context, I think the political condition, I would think, could contribute to this kind of like one-sided and overwhelming support of technology because there is really less um, space for people to have uh, different views on the uh, problems of technology. For example, like in the government, within the government structure, most of the time they tell you things that uh, are successful. So usually media propaganda this kind of disseminate information only about the success of technology. But in many situations, no information about the more dark side of technology. And also people believe, I mean, have very supportive attitude toward the government. And for example, like surveillance technology, some research showed that they have been this technology, even though a lot of people criticize surveillance technology in other parts of the world, but Chinese people tend to think they need to have this technology because the government can use this technology to protect them and the society. And also, if you look at, observe, uh, the countries that are similar to China in terms of this kind of a technological fetishism, they are tend to be this country, all of them, like top 10 country, um, all of them are classified as illiberal regimes. So I do think there is an authoritarian side of the story. Why is that? That's interesting. Why the connection there? Many of them are associated with Soviet, like they are parts of the Soviet uh, bloc in the past. Or, for example, Vietnam has a socialist uh, regime, I mean, on paper. And I think maybe that's related to like Marxism, this materialism thinking. I'm not sure, but uh, I think socialism could have some impact and also the political environment. One of the things we haven't talked about so far is how workers fare in a compressed, you know, techno-state capitalist system. You write in the book, quote, low-skill workers' prospects within China's plans for techno-development were grim from the start and have remained so. Why does the prospect for a low-skilled worker appear grim to you as you look at China today and, and look into the future? So usually when a country moves to a more technical, uh, technological uh, driven uh, economy, that means that people need to be able to have the kind of human capital to participate in a more knowledge-based economy. And the low-skilled workers tend not to have that kind of education. And it's difficult to upgrade their skills. So that means that the government has to do a lot of investment in education. 
and also in reskilling these populations. As far as I know, that the thing that the government has done to really re-educate these low-skilled worker remain very limited. So I think um, I didn't really see hope in this process for them. And also, a lot of research already showed that the polarization of employment uh, in the process of this kind of more uh, technology transformation. So usually, you have people who can get a lot of money, but those are really highly educated workers. But then the low-skill worker, they tend to uh, work in uh, service, uh, low-skill service economies. And in that sector, most of the jobs don't have social protection, and the wages tend to be low. And what do you think that means in terms of social stability? Do you sense that the Chinese state has figured out a way to push for transformative change in the structure of China's political economy while also containing the possible spillover of discontentment coming from workers? Or do you think we're actually setting up for maybe a new phase of labor dislocation and, and grievance? I take that to think social stability is a huge issue because in China, most of the social science literature suggests that in China, protests tend to be very localized and fragmented. They target specific like organization, like companies. So it's very difficult to have some kind of spillover effect. So that's very different from like white paper protests, right? So I think even though people can complain about the work condition of job and they could protest, but I still think wouldn't really lead to too much challenge for the government in terms of maintaining social stability. And also they have better technology to handle these problems now and to prevent the emergence and to suppress the protests. Oftentimes, we think about the dynamic of state contestation, support versus contestation. And I think we're always on the lookout for signs that the foundation of political stability in China is, is beginning to rupture a bit. But let me ask a slightly separate question, which is, we're clearly entering a paradigm shift not only geopolitically, but te technologically. And, and AI is one of the drivers of these. And, and since ChatGPT emerged last year, just in a year, there's been a profound transformation in the way that we think about technological futures and the effects that the years, these are going to have on the structure of the workforce. We're having that conversation publicly Although it's you know still relatively within elite circles, it still has has matured pretty significantly just over the last year as we've seen some of the capabilities of of AI. I know some of that conversation is happening in China, but but obviously not to the same degree it is, and not aided by an open public square. When you think about the future of this compressed, you know, technologically driven state capitalist system, do you foresee a change in its trajectory now that we have just radically disruptive technologies like AI coming online? Is there just a, a completely different story about to happen in China? To come back to one of my points just now is it's hard to get the, the regulatory apparatus right and the relative social balances 
in a in a democratic system where you have an open conversation, I would imagine it's going to be a lot harder to have this conversation or, or to get it right in China, where where much of this will happen behind closed doors, and essentially outcomes will just be determined and imposed on on the society. But the dislocations will still be there. So I'm just curious if you see a new era of kind of a, a radically different trajectory plane for China, or do you see the Chinese state as able to develop and diffuse some of these new technologies without sort of significant dislocations or costs? I think I wouldn't see a completely a different China just because of the AI and other technologies. I think they will have to face the challenge of how to balance, how to deal with the consequences of equality uh, from technological development. And AI is just one of the example. I mean, automation, this has been issued since uh, the Industrial Revolution. And in, in fact, Chinese leaders discussed this issue. And for example, Jiang Zemin wrote about how to deal with automation in the 70s already. My concern is that, as you mentioned, that there are people who, um, there are different stakeholders in the U.S. or in other contexts. And for example, like in Germany, Germany is one of the countries in which um, they have the highest level of automation. But workers, and compared with other countries, countries, workers don't suffer that much because of their the role of worker participation and trade unions. And in the Chinese context, it's just very difficult to to perceive how and who would speak for people who could suffer the most in the process. And also, it's very difficult to think about without a lot of radical political reform. For example, the uh, reform of the tax system and also the intergovernment uh, fiscal problems and how would the central government uh, motivate local government to deal with this issue, especially when many of these people, low-skilled workers, are migrant workers. So that's my concern, that uh, without this kind of political uh, changes, it's very difficult to ensure that uh, people who suffer the most, it wouldn't be like completely abandoned. Yeah, I struggle to understand how a technology like AI is going to develop and diffuse in a market democracy like the United States. I have even more questions when I try to think about the effect of these sorts of technologies on China, both in terms of you know structure of its workforce, also how it's going to affect governance capacity. And I, I suspect in reading just a little bit of the discourse in China that that they also understand just how significant a paradigm shift we're now entering. So this will be very important to watch. But as a way of clumsily concluding, I will say that The Gilded Cage, I found to be just such a interesting, important framework to think about China's development. I, I find books written by sociologists tend to offer such a unique lens that is often missing from either uh, faux technical sciences like economics or or the hard sciences. So I, I just continue to find your work uh, illuminating and, and important. Um, and this book is is no exception. So Yawen, thank you so much for for such great scholarship, but also your your time today to discuss it. Thank you so much, Jude. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 